Hi, you are listening to High Value Women, brought to you by the New Feminist Magazine. We are your hosts, Ellie Masiara Fielding. And darling, I'm a nightmare dressed like a daydream. It's Anastasia <laughs> for two rollings. <laughs> that one caught me off guard. That one caught me off guard a little bit. Hi guys, how you doing? Hope you all are good. So I was like we- expecting a response. I was like, come on. <laughs> Why aren't you speaking back to us? Oh my. So um, just before we dive in, Ellie and I had to explain we've been a little bit off schedule because we've both been living our lives, living it up. We've both been to Italy. Um, We didn't actually go together. We just happened to be there at basically the same time. Yeah. Listen, our scheduling has been a bit off because you had like no episodes for two weeks and now you've got two in a row. Um, So basically... You'll get your episodes when you get them, and uh, you're going to like it. (laughs) I like this attitude. (laughs) So, obviously, it's the end of Black History Month. As Adam pointed out, we've been a little bit absent magazine-wise, generally. That's our bad. We needed a break. Shoot us, whatever. (laughs) That's just how it's played out. Um, But we obviously didn't want to end the month without, you know, doing anything for Black History Month. So, this episode is dedicated to Black History Month Um, and um, I just wanted to preface it by saying we're not black (laughs) we We may be different in other ways be that sexuality or gender or nationality Um, but we will never understand what it's like to be a black person more specifically a black woman in this country Um, and that's why this episode is not really about us it's about them um so after the Femi facts we have chosen two black female icons each um and that have like resonated with us and then we're just going to be using our voices to share their story thank you so much for saying that I think it's so important that as non-black individuals that when we're in the conversation we are just using our voices to amplify those of black women black people in general I think Mm. that it's so easy for people who are acting as allies to then begin to speak over the community that they want to aid and we don't want to do that at all yes yes well said exactly exactly that being said should we jump into the femi facts do you want to go first yes so mine is i just wanted to use this moment to talk about another issue that we will never truly be able to understand um, which is the ongoing, essentially the ongoing genocide in Gaza right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to preface what I'm saying by I don't support violence of any kind. I'm a very, very passionate pacifist. And the waste of innocent life in any capacity from any nationality or any religious background is a tragedy. Mm. But I want to publicly support the Palestinian people who have been under colonization and occupation for the past 75 years and what will happen what we're seeing happening in Gaza right now and in the West Bank as well we can't forget that Palestine is a divided land and that both aspects of Palestinian territory are being seriously disrespected in many ways um there's a lot of information on TikTok right now um on social media platforms and I would actually say that mainstream media is doing an atrocious job of truly enlightening people to the realities of what this conflict is and that Gaza is in the world's largest open-air prison and it has been for a very long time. And 
that there's only so much that we can do as individuals, but every little helps. Using our voices, boycotting products that directly fund Israeli activities, and you'd be surprised how many of them there are. Um, and also showing support without being anti-Semitic and understanding that Israel mm. the state is not Judaism and Jewish people, the group or the religion. Um, and just taking time out of our days to really appreciate what we have and to continue to support the liberation of Palestinian people everywhere around the world because there are many who are displaced and cannot return to their homeland right now. Absolutely. Well said. And thank you for using your Femi fact for that. Thank you. Um, yeah, free Palestine. Um, obviously, as a publication, we are more often than not, because <laughs> there are some uh, clauses to that unbiased. But with this, it's very, very, as Adam pointed out to me the other day, it's very, very difficult to be unbiased in this particular situation. Um, especially at the moment as well. I, I'm really hating this rhetoric where it's like you've got to choose between being an Islamophobe um, and an anti-Semite. It's whoever's been been pushing that narrative, fuck you. Like it's Absolutely. honestly disgusting. And just a reminder to everyone that you know humans are at the center of this. I know it's a very unhelpful comment and rhetoric to make, but it's true. And the Israeli people, um, you know, are also humans. Um, and on that, uh, if you're maybe unsure or still a little bit confused, because it is quite complicated and this has been something, you know, uh, Israel, uh, Palestine has been, uh, something that's been happening for years and years and years and years. Um, and it, there's a lot there and it can be quite difficult to understand. Don't feel bad or ashamed or, um, you know, or that your misinformation is harmful. Yes, that can be the case. But we do have an article on our website, um, which basically breaks it down and, and makes it as accessible as we possibly could. Um, and it just sort of goes through a bit of the history in a short and, and easy to understand way. So definitely check that out. Thank you, Ellie. Do you want to dive <laughs> into your Femi fact, thought, feeling? Yeah, absolutely. I, this time I've got a bit of a Femi thought. I know I usually pull through with the quick facts, the interesting little tidbits, but... Um, this time in honor of Black History Month, I wanted to just share uh, a feeling and opinion that I had. Um, and again, I'm sorry, guys, <laughs> depressing start because it's not going to get any a, better. Yeah, this is going to be a bit of a heavier episode, but I think that the state of the world right now and just knowing history the way that we do, it's it has sometimes we have to have conversations that are a bit harder. Yeah, sometimes we have to we have to have the difficult conversations. That being said, though, when we do jump into the you know the icon icons that we'll be talking about, I'm very passionate about mine, and there's some really fantastic and inspiring things to be said. So, um, it's not all going to be sad. Um, but yeah, my Femi Thor. Um, I was just thinking about uh femicide in the UK. Um, and just how disproportionate like the media coverage is between black femicide and and white femicide i think it's really disgusting to be honest how for example sarah everard her coverage was so so and for good reason you know this, this yeah. i don't, don't want to take away anything from that that um atrocity um it's just that you know before and after and since then we've had uh Daryl Buchanan, Blessing Oligon, Valerie Ford, Janita Dogby, 
and so many more black women who have been victims of femicide um who just either won't get mentioned at all by the media or will barely you know barely get mentioned yeah um even though their cases can be just as oh god I don't want to say interesting that's a horrible word but you get what I'm saying you know obviously they're just as important just as important and just as poignant um uh and if, if not even more so because you know we do have a problem with race still um and by Absolutely. not platforming these cases we're we're ignoring them and we're saying as a nation that they're not important which they absolutely are hey thank you for that ellie um just one last note on that as well we can't mm. forget in this conversation to talk about trans women of color oh yes um, absolutely alarmingly um i don't know how true this statistic is today um, but or in the UK, but I know that in the United States, at least, um, in some areas, trans women of color are seventeen times more likely to be victims of homicide than the next highest groups. Wow, that's that's mad. That's insane. Yeah, it's <laughs> it it's it's it weighs very heavily. I mean, trans people of all nationalities, races, backgrounds are victims of violence, but it just that intersection of gender, um race and being part of the lgbtq plus community that intersection just is so in so so many ways it's such a beautiful experience i imagine but at the same time it's just so sad how dangerous it is just to exist as that kind of person yeah yeah absolutely um which actually it really um links to to the people who i'm i'm talking about like really really nicely on that should we jump into it because we We've got four lives to cover and we've been yes, pretty ambitious actually. Like we're like, yeah, we could get it done, but you know we always overrun. So uh we do. We'll, am we'll, I rhyming? We'll try now? Okay. Bitting bars over here. <laughs> oh my god, Nicki Minaj spirit right here. Uh, all right. Who's gonna go first? Ooh. Um do you want to or shall I? I'll go first, and then you okay. go, and then I go, and then you go. And you can round us off. <clears throat> nice. Right. So, when thinking about this episode, because we knew we were going to do some profiles, um, immediately the things that come to mind, the people that come to mind are American. Um, I was very set for a while that I was going to be covering Angela Davis. I've seen her talk um, and I think she's absolutely incredible. Like the two biggest feminist icons, in my opinion, are Gloria Steinem and Angela Davis, who are actually sort of side by side in their sort of activist communities at the time um, and are just iconic. But the problem is, I was just thinking, you know, this is Black History Month in the UK and the the Black British girlies, they get overlooked all the time, like constantly. So I'm like, nah, do you know what? Scrap this. We'll talk about Angela Davis another time. Absolute icon. Um, I'm going to focus on some UK girlies. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, the first person I've chosen is someone <clears throat> quite spectacular. Uh, she's called Una Marson. Have you heard of her? Um, I don't think so, actually. And that makes sense because she is often called the lost Caribbean voice, which is so sad after learning about her, her voice. So um, to preface... 
uh I'm not a historian <laughs> but I did watch an hour-long BBC documentary about her along with a bunch of other research uh and I was very immersed in her story <laughs> so I feel like I've got a little bit of uh something to go off here um and yeah I'm gonna jump in so Una Marson she was born in uh Jamaica in 1905 um she went to uh a, a sort of it's technically not a public school but similar to a public school because I don't think they really had those in Jamaica at the time uh, called Hampton High which was a girls school um and it was a very like prestigious school so they had a very similar education they had a g- bit of a global education and it would be very similar to your public schools in the UK at the time so she she comes out of that and she's Basically, this woman is super fucking bright. <laughs> she is a smart cookie. Um, absolutely falls in love with writing um, and just creativity and expression. Um, and once she graduates school, she moves to live in Kingston, obviously the capital. Uh, so at this point, she's 17 years old. It's 1922 um and straight away she's doing social work for the YMCA and she's a stenographer at the local newspaper so she's already straight in like just doing doing the most which we love um one thing to note about Una Marsden is um she already at her young age of 17 is starting to form very strong opinions um, and what she calls, in quotes, uh, unorthodox views about the emancipation of women, which roughly translates to queen... Women have rights. <laughs> queen mm. energy slash feminist thought. Um, so we already like how she's uh, shaping up. There's actually a famous, kind of semi-famous quote from her um, where she says, uh, this is the age of woman, what man has done, women may do, which at the time Period. was pretty pretty radical so um it's still radical now i mean yeah i mean that's true that's true so all around slay so she's 17 she's always writing constantly writing um and because she, she uh is living in kingston at this time she's she's uh exposed to a lot of poverty and just sort of like the grim conditions in kingston at the time um but from that she ended up doing some pretty hard-hitting journalistic pieces, um, which within four years got her from the back rooms to being uh, an assistant editor, which, damn, (laughs) super impressive. (laughs) Super duper impressive. So at this point, she's also setting up uh, a magazine. So she's assistant editor, and then she's gone within the same uh, company she's gone I want to set up a magazine for you lot as well, um, which is called The Cosmopolitan, which I think is so funny because this is before Cosmo. So this is the original Cosmo, to be honest. (laughs) No, literally, literally. Um, The current one now. (laughs) (laughs) No comment. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, uh, in this documentary, which I will... 
I've written a note on what it's called and I'll let everybody know at the end. But she um, is described as just like exuding confidence. She is a confident little um, teen at this point. She is incredibly intelligent. I mean, she's already making moves like setting up her own magazine, being assistant editor of, of the paper. Like she's really impressive and she's so young i mean if you want to feel bad about yourself <laughs> and, your, and your progress in life this is not the uh not the life story to listen to today um so she released her first collection of poems in 1930 uh, and her second collection uh and a hit play in 1932 um and then she decides to migrate to the uk um, so obviously at this time, we know that it was similar to the American dream in that the UK was presented to part of the parts of the world as uh, sort of the land of opportunity. And we we know that that wasn't the case. Uh, and, you know, when she gets there, she has a pretty and this is before Windrush, by the way. So she she has a pretty stark reality when she gets there and she's not treated well she thought she could maybe get like a a stenographer job or like a receptionist or something and she was having a real hard time when she got to the UK basically her first experience of racism um it's like surprise racism and it's it's not nice but it it did not stop her she's like she's just determined it seems yeah determined that's 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 the word I'm looking for she's full of determination and after spending a few years in the UK in uh 1937 she released a poem that some people may have heard of um because this is probably her most poignant poem that that she ever came out with uh it's called little brown girl um yes i have read this yes, yes uh and it's about um basically microaggressions so what she found in the uk is that uh race a lot of racism was wrapped up in politeness and was very um I mean I don't want to say subtle because a lot of the time it wasn't but I think in her words I think she did describe it as subtle it's um, mad though because sorry to interrupt you but no 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 go when, when I've seen like videos of black people from the United States who've come to like London or elsewhere in the UK describe the difference in their experience they say the same thing that in America racism is a lot more confrontational Mm. but here they experience racism a lot more subtly but like just as cuttingly oh yeah I think that is a big conversation generally even still today isn't it about how absolutely the difference in how racism is experienced in the US and the UK is is that the UK is much more it's filled with like microaggressions and it's wrapped up in politeness and etiquette which I think I don't know what I'd rather to be honest it's I mean neither I'd rather neither right. yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah but you know down to my head I still I, I don't know if I'd rather it just, yeah I, I, I think maybe I'd rather know where I'm at like okay well that person's a racist rather than like this sort of yeah pussyfooting around like I, I I mean I couldn't even imagine what that's like but anyway so because of this at this at this time she's she is super conscious now of what it means to be a black woman you know she's her politics really come into play uh, and start to take shape and and form um and she's like right i have a mission here um filled with with hidden rage um she ends up living with um dr howard moody do you know of dr howard moody so he was a huge like player in the 
in the sort of 1930s and 40s because he founded um the league of colored people um which was huge was huge um and really really important and did really important work which you know they're basically fighting against racism and uh for the sort of like integration of of races and and stuff like that so he was a major character um so this household is looking pretty like we have a doctor so we've got like activism we've got professionalism we've got like it's it's pretty it's it's going places oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah so anyway obviously um he's like you know you know you gotta you gotta join this league you gotta get involved and she's like hell the fuck yeah so um she um doesn't just join in but she creates the league of colored people's own magazine which what yes, a girl. What a fucking move. Um, can you see why I I've chosen her? I can <laughs> as, see why as somebody, yes. as, as somebody who's created a magazine out of rage. <laughs> I was like, yes. Um so that was called The Keys, and it was to help fight r- racism and improve relations between the races in the UK at the time. Um, and um, you know, she was con what is so cool about her is because she went to this like uh public school, she was so incredibly smart and she was constantly surprising people with her knowledge. So when she would experience a microaggression or you know, straight up racism, or people would doubt her um experience or knowledge, um, she would just like start talking about like marxism or like you know she'd she'd start showing off her knowledge yeah she'd prove them wrong which i just love a good comeuppance story do you know what i mean Um, absolutely (laughs) um and then she wrote a play and she's actually the first black woman to ever reach the west end um the first the first ever um with her play which was called at what price um and it was about an interracial relationship and uh, we, we can't prove it but the, the people in the documentary were saying we're pretty sure if it wasn't the very first one it was at least one of the first yeah stories about an interracial relationship people were like at the time asking her like is it about you and she was like you know what let them guess and so we don't know um so because of her you know her confidence her um knowledge her experience and apparently in quotes her refined dress sense and etiquette um she would then uh be asked to be a representative of the league um so you know she's climbing up the steps of notability i would say and activism and then she met this uh, now Okay, this is where I have a gap in my knowledge. I, deep apologies because I, I don't remember who, but she met um, an African king who came over um, to the UK to visit, and, and I don't. What is it, Ali Selassie of Ethiopia? No, but he he does come into play later. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. okay. I'm just trying to think of what African countries have monarchs or have had monarchs. I'll put it in the episode notes after yeah. I, I I just I just it was going so fast I just didn't have a chance to write down his name um but he taught her a lot um there's there's sort of some theories that they may have had a little romance or if they were just yeah or if they were just really really good friends but he taught her a whole lot about Africa obviously she's from Jamaica so he's taught her a whole lot about Africa African culture and she said she wrote that um she had never felt so validated in her blackness so she she's she started to think more globally now and she's thinking Mm. you know she's uh 
becoming more of a like pan-Africanist is what the, the woman on the documentary said. Um, she started to make powerful speeches. They started to make headlines. And then um, the League of Nations then asked her if to be a West Indian representative in Geneva. So now she's oh, wow. she's she's with the big the big dogs and she's she's writing about um you know like <clears throat> race relations and stuff like that um for the League of Nations. Uh at the t- and then shortly after and at the time she was doing this Mussolini uh did an attack on Abyssinia. Um okay. and this is where Selassie comes into play. So he then comes over to the UK and she she basically what she's doing and she's doing this in a very like tactful way is she's like I'm situating myself with the big dogs like I'm I'm situating myself right in the middle of this yeah um in 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 this activism and this and the people of power um and she was one of the first people who went to go visit him when he came to the UK um and obviously he was a major um decision maker about the the freedom of Africans in in Africa so she was like yeah I'm going to situate myself with these people 1938 and she's gone to this event where she's met this BBC producer BBC producer Cecil Madden and he wants her he's like I I want I want to give you a job uh, at the BBC well World War II starts um and she basically becomes a producer the very first black female producer at the bbc yes you know <laughs> um you know i i don't want to overlook it she's you know she's jumping hurdles she's making amazing movements but i also don't want to overlook the fact that you know she's still having a really hard time like she would go to bomb shelters during the war and people she said that people looked at her like she was the bomb, <laughs> you know, like she's still having yeah. a hard time integrating. Um, but luckily there's sort of an influx of West Indians because the BBC expanded their broadcasting to the colonies um, to seek support in the war efforts. So then we start seeing like West Indian men uh, and women sort of more about basically. They're just, yeah. they're, they're, they're um, you know, coming over um, in larger quantities um, which helps to sort of settle things a little bit and helps her as well. Right. So she she becomes part of a suite of programs in the BBC. Like she's got her hands in so many pies right now. And she's, you know, this is the first time black people, especially West Indians, are like hearing their voice and their accents yeah. on the radio, which is mad. And this is also being broadcast to the colonies. So to Jamaica, to the West Indies. So this is like a this is huge. Um especially because before they when they would broadcast it was mostly to like the colonizers, like to the white people yeah. who live there. This is the first time it's for the people. So she, this is this is groundbreaking for media. Um, you know, she's she's literally changing lives. People would write in talking about like how much she's changing their lives uh even like white women uh are feeling impacted by this um and then in 1942 she becomes uh, a producer in the caribbean unit and she even becomes like besties with george orwell and t.s elliott 
I know. <laughs> and actually she's her... really just like, she's with all the big dogs. Oh, yeah. Like, this woman is globally known now. She's famous. Um, Orwell loves her. Her and Orwell have the cutest friendship ever. Um, Orwell writes stuff like this new woman that they've got the BBC, she's fucking competent. It's like, this woman, they finally, we've got, they've brought on a producer that knows what they're doing. Um, So he's obsessed with her. Obviously, with his politics, you know how that they would, he would, uh, like, sympathise and, like, understand um, yeah. what she's sort of going through. So um, he, she went on his show. Uh, she said there was a lot of pressure because, you know, she was told to not alienate herself or make white people uncomfortable and that was a whole thing but then she got her own show finally she got her own show love this okay called caribbean voices she brought on guests uh talked about um always uh west from the west indies and would talk ask them to talk about their life in the uk and what's that like so she's also raising awareness about you know race um, I love UK that she's time. bringing other people from her community to the table. Like, yeah. that's that's so important, I think, when you are one of the pioneers of something that you don't just make the pathway for yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it was a hit. Her show was a, was a fucking hit. Like, it was. It went from 20 minutes and the BBC were like, we want to make this an hour. She, she was struggling, though, because people, you know, she would overhear people talking about how, like, she wasn't that good or you know commenting things about her hair being unprofessional and how she didn't deserve what and you know there are letters between bbc people like uh, yeah uh, at the top saying oh don't worry her her pay isn't going to be that good like you know stuff like that like she's very much on her own here like this even though she has this she created this amazing community and has this show she is very much alone um and is still facing, you know, so much racism um, and discrimination on the daily. Um, and this, this, this is a sort of a poignant moment in her life because she then meets and falls in love with uh, Dudley Thompson, who is quite famous in himself as as being like a famous lawyer in Jamaica. But this is, you know, 30s and 40s, and this was a time where women couldn't have both. Like, if you wanted to get married, you would renounce your job. You you literally couldn't. It, yeah. You couldn't have both, no matter how you looked at it. So she had to pause to think about whether she, you know, what she wanted. Like, did she want to be a wife or did she want to continue? I mean, she's on a roll here, so she had to think about it. She even wrote something where she was saying, like, to marry or not to marry and then she was like I've chosen not to <laughs> yes <laughs> so once again she's she's sort of back at it um she in 1945 she comes out with probably one of her you know most important works called politeness um where she says our skin is black but our hearts are white and their skin is white but their hearts are black Ooh. Yeah, yeah, really, really poignant I bet that stuff. ruffled some feathers. It definitely did. But it should have done, because I don't think she was wrong when she oh, said absolutely, that. Absolutely not, especially at the time, um, because it's really amping up. The more power she's getting at the BBC and, and just, you know, in the UK in general, the more backlash she's getting, or at least the more discrimination she's experiencing... And she's really outworking herself here. She's she's pro- she's producing and presenting several shows a week. 
and she starts to get tired bless her she's like really really struggling at this point and she's spiraling uh she doesn't take breaks she's not paid that well she's not looking after herself um and she kind of is wanting to go back to jamaica but the bbc are calling her indispensable and they're not letting her go the but also after... not paying her a fair wage, I assume. Yeah, no. So even though it's a milestone to become the first black female uh, producer at the BBC, it, it, it's also a bit of a curse. Mm. Um. So anyway, she's getting tired. She's getting tired of fighting. Um. Uh, she The war ends and she spirals into a depression. She doesn't come out of her flat for weeks, months. She is diagnosed with having a nervous breakdown and uh, writes that all, she says, all I want is peace. Finally, the BBC grant her a leave of absence in 1946 to return to Jamaica. She goes to Jamaica. Um, she st- it's still pretty bad for her. It takes her years to recover, uh, a couple years to recover, because um, in 48, so this is a dark time for her, may I add. She's, ex- I mean, she's been a pioneer. This woman is a pioneer, not just for women, but black women and and black people in general like she is an absolute pioneer and she's tired herself out like she has not had a break so it's taken her a couple years she's she's in a pretty dark place she writes to Orwell all the time I love their friendship I don't know why I just love their friendship Uh, it's so sweet though I love that too yeah um and um she recovers she's an older lady at this point um and you'd think you'd think after a long time of campaigning activism writing pioneering you'd be like right I'm off on holiday, retirement. But no, she throws herself into fundraising. She creates her own charity called Jam Save. She advocates for family welfare, women's rights, children's literacy, and setting up, and she sets up her own publishing company called the Pioneer Press, which she says is an accessible form of literacy for her local community. The fuck? <laughs> How has one person done so? She, this, she's I like know. a. She's like. It's like Trisha Paytas. Like she's living so many <laughs> lives. It's like, how do you even do this much in a lifetime? I do not know. Um, Only high value women will compare this iconic <laughs> pioneer of the Caribbean <laughs> to Trisha Paytas. I don't mean it. I but, don't mean it. But you know what, though? I, I see where you're coming from. Like, she's been putting the work in. Yes. Like, the yes. devil works hard, but homegirl works harder. Lit- no, literally. Literally. So, anyway, um, she she dies in 1965. Like, she, she's uh, lived a long life, um, inspired a generation, um, and she she writes something uh, called Confession in... in near the end of her life where she basically says I regret nothing I've lived I've loved I've known laughter dance and song I've wept I've sighed I've prayed um and she she goes on to talk about her her life and it's so beautiful so beautifully written I highly recommend you go find it and read it um it's not that long um and and, I mean that's it but one thing that they were saying at the end of the documentary is that People were, I mean, they were devastated at her death. But the the second, the thing that came next was people were very worried that she was going to be forgotten about, which, uh, unfortunately, well, never heard of her. I mean, she she's has. A phenomenal woman, and yeah. I'm clued in, and I haven't heard of her. So, well, the BBC documentary is called um, Una Marston, Our Lost Caribbean Voice, because she is a lost voice, and and I I was I I watched this documentary and I went no. <laughs> I cannot have it. <laughs> no, too right. I'm like, I feel so 
sad for this amazing woman that history just as it does with so many women mm. like says okay you've had your time now we're gonna move on mm. but she did amazing things also you say she died in 1968 uh 65 65 okay just wanna add she was alive to see jamaica become an independent country then because jamaica was oh. in 62 oh that's so, so I'm nice happy that she at least lived to see her home country be independent yeah oh I love that I didn't even think about that they didn't mention it in the thing but oh that's so nice um and yeah sorry that one I got really immersed in the in the documentaries and my notes as you could probably see me flicking through was like five pages long so I might have to skip my next one or shorten it but (laughs) it was worth it but no that was brilliant thank you so much for that no worries I'm excited to to hear yours who've we got okay so our next one is I'm just going to issue a bit of a trigger warning. This is not a positive story, um, but this is incredibly relevant because the way that black bodies are still treated today in the media, how they're commodified and fetishized and fixated upon and objectified. Mm -hmm. This story is very much about that and it contains um, violence, colonial violence, sexual assault, um, some graphic details. So... um, Ellie, if you'd be so kind when you edit this to just add a little timestamp, a little voice note in to say when the listeners can skip to if they don't want to hear this story. Yes, no problem. And as promised, I'm doing that right now. I am issuing a major trigger warning for the next section of our podcast. What Adam is about to talk about contains details of extreme racism, sexual assault and violence, graphic details of gore, extreme violence and slavery. If you'd like to avoid that, I would advise you skip to around 53 minutes of the episode. If you are prepared to this, this is a story of a woman called Sarchi Bartman. Um, have you heard of her before? No. Um, I when you when you said you were going to talk about it, I googled her, but I hadn't I hadn't okay. heard of her. So, so Sarchi Bartman was a first of all. This was the name that was given to her. We don't know what her actual name was because pretty much all records of her are under the name Sarchi, which is Dutch for Sarah. Oh, okay. So she was a woman born in South Africa. Well, what would become South Africa in 1789. Now, at the time, South Africa was a Dutch colony and she was a member of a group called the Khoikhoi, who are a tribe that live um, largely in eastern South Africa today. Um, and the Khoikhoi were, they were known to colonizers. First of all, they were in a guerrilla war with the Dutch colonizers at the time, who basically slaughtered her tribe oh my um, as they continued to push deeper in South Africa. Wow. It's believed that Sarchi had a husband who was murdered by a Dutch settler and also an infant who died. Mm. Um, so the Khoikhoi were known as the Hottentots at the time which um, is a colonialist term for them because women from the Khoikhoi tribe are known for having very large um, curvaceous figures, um, large bottoms, um, wide hips. And as you can imagine, a bunch of white men that have lived in the Netherlands their entire lives did not oh, really Jesus. the bodies of Khoikhoi women. I'm stressed already. So... Sarachi was sold to a Dutch slaver called Peter Caesar and was brought to Cape Town um, around the year 1810. 
And this is where she named received the name Sarchi, and Bartman was also given to her because slaves were given surnames as well that were of the country of origin. So Sarchi Bartman is a name, but it's a Dutch name. It's not her indigenous name. Okay. A few a few months later, so she's in Cape Town. Being she's being treated as a slave. Well, she's a slave. Um, Peter Cesar's brother, who who was her owner, um, his brother Hendrik, and an English ship surgeon called William Dunlop observed Sarchi, and immediately they were fascinated by her genitals and her large bum. Um, they fetishized her body and called it exotic and exciting and. It's understood that basically Hendrik and Peter made an agreement where Peter sold Sarchi to Hendrik um, so that she could be brought to England. Okay. Um, Hendrik would later go on to claim, and this is important later, that he'd negotiated a contact with Sarchi herself and promised her passage back to South Africa. But it will not surprise you to know that such a contract has never been discovered. There's no evidence that it existed, only Hendrik's words on the matter. Um and unfortunately, Sarchi would never return to South Africa. Oh my goodness. So, oh, on the 20th of March in 1810, Sarchi left for England um, and okay, arrived. It's still about pretty fresh, though. A month or two later. Obviously, the voyage took a long time. Yeah. Ah. So, technically, the slave trade had actually been abolished in Britain and its territories about three years earlier, um, in the around 1807. But, yes, and it's important to know that the slave trade was abolished, but the ownership of people as slaves was not. So, at this time in Britain, there were a handful of freed um, black individuals who were starting to move up slightly. Um, you know, the sort of similar mm-hmm. to um, Una Marston, some like pioneers of like British black history who were starting to make the way up a little bit. Um, but a large number of people at right. this time who were black existed as slaves in this sort of gray area of, well, you can't, yeah, the fuck? What, what, what were they thinking? I'm also still a slave, so what, what is it? Oh my god, um. Upon landing, they tried to sell Sarchi to the Natural History Museum. So mind that he is. Thought, hmm, so our first plan to make some money off this woman didn't work, but what could we do instead? So he had a plan to profit off Sarchi's body, and he wasn't wrong in thinking that he could. So he displayed her at a venue at 225 Piccadilly Street in London, where she was essentially part of a human zoo. Now, for those of you that don't know, human zoos have a long and dark history, um, predominantly across Europe and North America. Um, A lot of people, particularly people of African and Asian origin and indigenous American origin, um, were displayed, honestly, in worse conditions than many animals, even at that time. Um, They were not viewed as human beings. They were observed as, well, as animals. And people would go and gawk at them, um, they were made to perform a number of things. At this time, um, Sochi was portrayed as a, for some people, something to gawk at. Um, obviously, at this time, people of colour were not a common sight, even in London, in the UK. Um, 
many men would go to gawk at her to satisfy sexual fetishes that they had about African women as these exotic, different bodied individuals. Um, the common belief at the time was that African women had animalistic libidos, that they were um that that they were sex objects, essentially. Oh and God. many people would go just to tut at Sergi as if her body meant that she'd done something wrong. I still am trying to wrap my head around the concept of, of human zoos. I just I just cannot like Bear in mind, comprehend this is it. Just over two hundred years ago. Like it's it's still kind of fresh considering. Like I, I, yeah. I can wasn't the last uh human zoo though, wasn't that didn't that close like in the fifth, I think. The fifties. I think it was the fifties, yeah. Holy shit. Like oh, I believe God, I can't wrap my head around was, it. It was either in France or Belgium or somewhere on Yeah, yeah, yeah. Europe. Where they was displayed African children as part of like an African um like safari exhibit or something. Children as well. I cannot I cannot children like, were most comprehend. commonly utilized. I want to keep in mind as well. Search at this point was only about 23, 24. Oh my god. It's just it's not a life. And it's horrendous. So it was reported in the media, and so literally media would cover her as an ex- exhibition. Um, as an attraction, and it was reported wow. on numerous occasions she'd complain about being in pain, asking to not dance with the crowds. Do you think that her complaints were listened to? Absolutely not, no. She would instead be beaten with a bamboo pole into compliance, and despite being in pain, and also dressed, just regardless of the time of year and the weather, um, in very revealing clothing, um, she was forced to dance still and perform. Wow. So, all, bear in mind, this is all in the, um, the duration of one year, so we're still in 1810. At the end of the year, um, a group of abolitionists, early abolitionists who'd pioneered abolishing the slave trade, had persuaded courts to hear a case questioning, questioning whether she'd actually consented to be brought to England. In court, Hendrick Caesar claimed that she had signed a contract willingly, but again, as I said earlier, no contract has ever been found. No one, there's no evidence that it ever existed. Um, so it's suspected that basically he was trying to cover his own ass a little bit. Wow. Sanchi as well also only really spoke Dutch outside of her indigenous language. So her words were translated by an interpreter. The interpreter claimed she was happy to stay in England and that she wanted to continue to perform. While there's ain't no way she said that. I'm sorry, ain't no fucking way she said that. While there is an argument that some people have claimed that even though she probably didn't say this, perhaps she was being tactical because she knew that returning to South Africa would likely have resulted in returning to a more regimented, brutal form of slavery, if you can imagine, from her life right now. Christ. Um, But the sad thing about Sauchi's story is, we, as I said, we don't even know her true name. And we don't, we'll never know what she thought. We, well, there's no writing from Sarchi herself. There's no, um, there's very little information we have about her life, um, from her perspective. So even this story, as awful as it is, there's probably a lot of things that have been left out because of the fact that simply Sarchi was never given a voice. And even when she was able to testify in court, her words were interpreted by someone who, 
there's not any hard evidence, at least that I found of this, but that it could have been paid off by um, Hendrik Caesar, who was the man who was forcing it to perform, or this person could have had an agenda of their own. We simply mm. don't know. Mm-hmm. So at the end of this case, Caesar was ordered to stop her for stop um to stop making her perform, but he was allowed to keep her in England. And for the next three years, we don't know an awful lot about her life, but we know that she was t- secretly toured around the UK doing the same thing. So despite being told you can't make her do this anymore, eh, she still had to. Oh my god. And about three years later, she ends up in Paris. At this time, um, Hendrik Caesar sells her to an animal trainer we only know by the name of Roe, and she never saw Hendrik Caesar again. We think, if you think this is going to be like, oh, things start to club, unfortunately, they don't. So, again, in Paris, she drew in large crowds, and this time she was marketed as the Noir Venus, and was portrayed in a far more inherently sexual light than she ever was in England. In England, she was shown to be more of a curiosity, and some men would go to get the rocks off, but in Paris, she was inherently positioned as a sexual being. Jesus Christ. In Paris, Roe, her new owner, also put a collar around her neck, housed her next, housed her next door to a blackbird in a cage, and would hire out to Parisian elite for parties at night. In these parties, she would no doubt be a victim of sexual assault. At no this time, yeah, we're, we're getting closer to the end now. So she's about 25 at this time. At this time, she caught the eye of a biologist called Georges Cuvier, who thought that she was some kind of missing link. And he wanted to sketch every inch of her body, but she refused to show him her genitalia. So not long after arriving in Paris and really going through it, she died in around around her mid-20s. It's predicted she died around the age of 25, 26. Do we know why? Like well, how? we don't really. So no death certificate was issued, so we don't have a sort of formal cause of death, but it's believed by some that she died of complications of either alcoholism or potentially it could be connected to her forced sex work, which um, if it was alcoholism, if I was going through that sort of thing, you could not blame someone for trying to drink because just reading this story makes me want to drink. And... I, yeah, I've she... zero what like I don't maybe I'm getting close to my period because I feel like crying right now like that's the first time I heard this story I cried yeah that's just a trope uh, no no words would do that story any kind of like we're not even at the end Ch- what <sighs> unfortunately we're not okay continue so at this point Sarah she has passed away but her story doesn't end for another over 100 years. What? So the biologist, George Cuvier, that we mentioned earlier, sometime shortly after her death, obtained her body. <sighs> he would go in to make a plaster cast of her corpse. He then dissected her. He removed her brain and genitals, preserving them in jars. And then he boiled down her flesh and remaining organs and preserved her skeleton. These remains eventually found their way to the Musée de l'Homme, which means the Museum of Man, in Paris. And until 1974, her remains were displayed for the public to see. 
1974, enough public outcry was garnered that eventually her remains were put in storage. 20 years later, in 1944, when Nelson Mandela was elected in South Africa, it was requested that Sarachi's remains were repatriated. The French denied this request and continued to deny it for another eight years, largely because they suspected if they had to return Sarachi's remains, that would mean they'd have to return a lot of other remains of human beings who had similar stories to Sarachi. Fucking frogs. And finally, in 2002, her remains were repatriated and buried in the Eastern Cape, near to where it's believed that Sarachi was born. I think this, I mean, this is, it's one of the worst stories that I think anyone's ever heard, but I think it's so important to share it because it's a part of British Black history. And unfortunately, the commodification of her body is, it it still happens today. Black bodies are fetishized and marketed and co-opted and appropriated. I mean, we talked about this in our Kardashians episode, that the black body is mystified in white culture and it's Mm. portrayed as this inherent other this exotic thing that is sold and repackaged for white audiences and exactly is a very extreme example of that i think it's it's disgusting how black bodies has been basically like shamed and then stolen it's probably one of the most disgusting things that you know white people as a as a culture has ever done like and yeah. it's just it's just not talked about enough yeah that was that was do you know what that was heavier than i thought it was gonna be i'm in between like potentially crying and throwing up <laughs> to be honest like my next one um that we'll close out with is a good one that's <laughs> much more positive and we can really have a bit more fun with but um like, fuck for like <laughs> oh jesus no you're right you're absolutely right like we have to, we have to we cannot erase history um and we we have to understand what has happened in order to be able to create change um i strongly believe in that so thanks for for sharing her story no matter how sad or traumatic it was um defo going to be <laughs> emphasizing that trigger warning <laughs> at the beginning of the episode yes <laughs> oh, shit wow wow okay right i'm a sp- speed through mine because i do not want to be editing into our podcast again right okay lighten it up a little bit (laughs) um next person who we're going to talk about or i'm going to talk about is claudia jones have you heard of her i have heard claudia jones okay yeah she is definitely more well known than my last um and well she's uh brilliant just just like you know was um fantastic um oh i'm trying to decide whether to say what she's known for now or like make it i'm gonna make it a surprise um right so i i chose claudia for a number of reasons but one uh that the most uh uh, the biggest reason probably being that we are kind of very loosely tied in that um, she is Trinidadian and I have Trinidadian heritage. My um, arse of a granddad was a uh, Trinidadian. <laughs> I'd love to celebrate it, but he was a... Uh, well, big uh, up the Trinis. <laughs> big up the Trinis because my auntie is Trinidadian and we love her. I've spoken about Auntie Joan before. Shout out to Auntie Joan. Uh, who is a lovely human being. Um, but yeah, uh, quick little family history for, for some context since it's Black History Month. Uh, my nan fell in love with a Trinidadian man 
um they had my mum and the asshole dipped uh started a new family left her um and left a white woman in the 60s with a mixed race baby in manchester <laughs> which mm. that's my mum by the way which uh, as you can imagine who we uh, love <laughs> yeah who we adore um but as you can imagine that was n- not ideal so boo no. him he's dead now um uh apparently i have actually <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Normalize saying boo him, he's dead now, because like I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> um oh, new merch or that. <laughs> Actually, let us know if you want that on merch, because I'm low-key like wanting it right now. No, I'll fully message Olga right now and ask her to make that. <laughs> um yeah, so anyway, I have ties. My my auntie. My brother is way more Trinidadian than I am because we have a different dad. Um, but yeah, a lot of ties to Trinidad. Um, one of my favorite people. We need to go on a trip. We really do. I've, do you know what? I've I never would, been I there would, either. I really want to go. Me too. My my auntie Jude's lives that lives there, and she is probably the the coolest woman ever. Like, oh, anyway, another episode. I will describe Auntie Jude's. Big up Auntie Jude. Anyway, um, right, Claudia Jones. She is born in Trinidad in 1915. Um, so it's actually sort of slightly, she's born slightly after Una, uh, which is quite funny that it's like mm. they're overlapping a little bit. Um, anyway, so she's born in Trinidad. Um, she moves to Harlem, New York when she's eight with her mum. And um, her her mum dies quite, quite early. Again, this is the American dream thing, like similar to the UK thing, where it's like, uh, presented as the land of opportunity you, you might have a better life here you know you're you can get work you can live out your dreams we all know about this awful lie <laughs> um yeah. obviously they moved to Harlem New York they're, they're experiencing ridiculous amount of racism they're overworked underpaid the mum uh dies when she's 12 um uh but she is academically gifted um it sort of comes to her quite easily unlike you know who worked very very hard I mean she you know Claudia did work hard but she's just gifted academically Mm. from a really young age um because uh, and why we know that is because her education was actually cut short um because she had um tuberculosis to am I all right tuberculosis (laughs) tuberculosis TB (laughs) <laughs> TB. I don't know why I said it like that. I had a bit of a malfunction. Um, yeah, so she had tuberculosis. Uh, so her education was cut short. But despite that, she's still probably one of the most intelligent women that has ever lived. Um, uh, unfortunately, it didn't ever really leave her. Um, and it's something that she t- t- it's important to know that she struggled with that throughout her entire life. So just bear in mind that while she's making all these moves, she is suffering with tuberculosis so that in itself like I have acid reflux and I will take days off <laughs> so, <laughs> just same to... <laughs> um so yeah so after graduating from high school um she didn't jump into activism right away she worked at like various retail jobs you know living a, a sort of as regular as she could sort of teenage life as a woman of color which was very difficult 
Um, she eventually discovered her passion for writing, which led to her, um, which led her to land an editorial role at a local newspaper, um, which was, it, it, you know, it's quite big. Uh, being a young black woman in in New York, that's a that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, she's starting to as she's growing and evolving. You know, I, I what I love about these profiles that we're doing is the sort of well, probably aside from yours because there was no she wasn't allowed to have her like personality but mm. um is that there's this coming of age uh yeah story where, where they sort of realize they're in blackness and and they they end up fighting for it advocating for it and and <clears throat> you know just like living in it which it, you know though comes at some cost is so beautiful i think um so anyway, she's starting just like Una did. She's starting to realize, you know, what her own politics are. She's in. She's really, <clears throat> I wouldn't say inspired, but angry at the injustices of like the Jim Crow segregation, the poverty in African American communities, and that's where her activism really starts to take shape, as it did with so many um, young Black people in America at that time. <laughs> so at eighteen, like she's literally eighteen, <laughs> she's like <laughs> raring to go at eighteen. Uh, she joins the Young Communist League USA, which um, later became the American Youth for Democracy during World War II. So she had also become a member of the NAACP and Communist Party USA. So she's she's basically like, bitch, I'm an activist now. <laughs> this yeah. is this is who I am. I'm. She's I'm like fighting. hard launch. Yeah, <laughs> hard launch. Forget this. Like skip the soft launch with hard launch. <laughs> um. So she, because of this, because she was, you know, we we also have to consider that this was dangerous, like putting yourself out there as a young black woman, you know, everything's against you and, and you're now actively like on the front lines fighting. Um, I, I don't, you know, I mean that metaphorically in terms of activism, not she didn't join the army. She couldn't, she's a woman. But anyway, um, <clears throat> she got into some hot water during the like McCarthy era um uh, yeah. <laughs> as you can imagine uh was arrested multiple times um then served nine months i think it was nine months but i might have to fact check uh, in prison um oh, so play fuck the police <laughs> yeah literally <laughs> careful it might <laughs> um, <laughs> it's plugged in um and um then in 1955 she was deported um and get this she was deported after being convicted of un-american activities that was the crime well there you go <laughs> honestly and she was sent America. to trinidad so um she tried to go back to trinidad but at the time the uh, leader of trinidad was like nah um and i don't remember why i'm going to have to have a like have a look at the details surrounding that but anyway she ended up going to the uk um so <clears throat> one of her she she really starts to like get into her feminist era here and again this is you know early 20th century feminism the word has barely been uttered suffragettes have barely yeah. done their thing like this is this is fresh um and she's already writing some incredible works um so we're in like 1949 now and she writes an end to the neglect of the problems of the negro woman which just laid the foundation for intersectional feminism so intersectional feminism that ideology was not coined um or didn't exist and i, I 
strongly believe that she was the first woman to really like talk about it um though though yuna sort of she sort of had that ideology she never expressed it in the same way that claudia did she really was like this is like we need to have this intersectional ideology and yeah. way of thinking. And in that essay, she delves into the ways like black women are marginalized, not just by mainstream society, but also within the broader movements of uh, movements for civil rights um, and women's rights. Um, and she argued specifically that the liberation of black women was essential for the liberation of all people. Um, and that's where that key like and ideology. And she is absolutely spot on. And she's basically what like the first person to ever utter those sorts of sentiments which is very bold again for those though like that era so she she was sort of urging people at the time in the UK to recognize that black women face a very unique type of oppression so you know we've got you know women are already realizing that they're being oppressed a little bit because we're in the 50s um but she's trying she's basically shouting in in into a void saying like black women are facing like that we need to sort this out first like, it's two fo- it's double fold yeah which is it still is yes so she coined a really important term for feminism um which, which led to intersectionality called triple oppression um which was just which describes the intersection of race gender and class so she's this this woman is way 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 ahead Genius. of time in feminist literature like she is ahead of it um and she again like she firmly believed that the liberation of black women would serve as in quotes a touchstone for the liberation of all oppressed people the mother intersectionality in a lot of ways yes exactly Shout out to Kimberly crenshaw who coined that term another <laughs> amazing black woman yes absolutely um absolutely um so yeah she she just believed that like no peace could be attained um if any women especially those who were oppressed and impoverished were like left out of the conversation yeah. conversation which we love so um <clears throat> Once she was in London, uh, Claudia sort of saw a replay of the racial tensions she had experienced in in the US, especially against the Caribbean community. And the slogan, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, which is very, if you know, if you're American, mm. you, you might not recognize it, but it's a very, um, unfortunately, famous sort of phrase that was on every door <laughs> of, estab- of every establishment at the time. Um, it, was, it was rampant and awful. Um so Claudia didn't she didn't just sort of sit back she decided to be a protector and advocate for London's Caribbean community so another pioneer for uh the Caribbean and West Indian community in London and the UK um and this is where she really comes into her bag and it really excites me because she founds the first ever black British newspaper called the West Indian Gazette um so at, like in similar time periods we've got the first British black woman to be a producer in the BBC or to ever work for the BBC. And then we've got the first ever British black newspaper. We've just got black media just Brilliant. arising and it's beautiful. Um, <clears throat> so that's in 1958. So a bit afterwards, but it's still, you know, <clears throat> she's still pioneering this, this movement. Um, so yeah, this was a massive milestone because it created a platform for the Caribbean community to, you know, also not just discuss and like raise awareness with you know white people but to be able to connect with each other yeah um that same year notting hill and nottingham were hit by race riots um which ignited her idea for a community event and this is 
what Claudia is known for and um, you will know it very shortly. <laughs> so um, Claudia believes that people without a voice, this is in quotes, people without a voice were lambs to the slaughter. So she decided to create an event called Claudia's Caribbean Carnival, which is so cute um, because it was indoors um, in it, in the first one was at St Pancras Town Hall and over the next few years it migrated to different town halls around London um, so it's inside it's quite small and it's a showcase for Afro-Caribbean talent um, and it was even televised on BBC the first one um, and there's uh, you know um, West Indy cuisine music uh, like showcases and this might be sounding very familiar because Claudia's Caribbean Carnival it's now called Notting Hill Carnival and it she she invented it um she she was sick of the you know racial tensions that she saw you know mirrored in the UK and she was like I I need to create something <clears throat> that celebrates our culture rather than shames it and after a few years it moved out of the town halls and into the streets um and um yeah artists activists writers community leaders would attend they gathered for west indian cabaret carnival queen contests and live music and claudia believed that a people's art is the genesis of their freedom that's a quote again she's full of amazing i quotes. love that and i love that it's a form of activism and honestly a form of protest kind of like pride in a lot of ways where it's like it's a form of protest but it's protest free celebration yeah. yeah 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 and sometimes you can be an activist just by showing up for yourself and celebrating who you are. And I love that so much because it's so yeah. important. <laughs> Beautifully said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, she, I, she died in 1964 uh, at the age of 49 uh, due to the complications with uh, tuberculosis. So uh, again, uh, just going back to that, it never stopped. Like she did all yeah. of this while struggling with tuberculosis. So I mean, which her... TB is not a fun ride. A <laughs> it's not acid reflux, let me tell you. <laughs> um, and yeah, her legacy is just colossal. Like, she didn't just fight for the rights of black people, but she she fought for the rights of black women, like like specifically, um, and and effectively shaped the conversation around intersectional feminism. Um, and you know now not it today, not Notting Hill attracts millions of people people come from all around the world to see it um and it's even so adele nice goes. huh i said even adele goes yeah even adele. Oh, let's not talk about it <laughs> um and yeah claudia's core message of i think it's it's so nice that thinking about where Notting Hill Carnival comes from and that it was created because of Claudia's message of unity and empowerment. I think it's so beautiful and I think it's such a lovely story. Um, not, you know, I also don't want to overlook the fact that she would have faced a lot of adversity herself. And, you know, it's not oh, all like, it's not all rainbows and sunshine. But um, I, I do think it, I mean, it makes me want to go to Notting Hill Carnival, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Yeah, let's go. Like magazine trip. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a shame about the violence in recent years, but yeah, let's hope that doesn't persist. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's my two, my two British girlies. So, my next one is 
we can have a lot more fun with this one. Okay. Um, I, I think I have to start she unfortunately the other way as well. Um, <laughs> I'm so, so glad you started with it. Imagine how depressed the end would have been. Yeah, that's why I thought it should be better to start with. Yeah. So, now this amazing woman has been described by some as the mother of hip hop. The high priestess of soul. I'm so fucking excited right now. And to me, I think she is possibly the greatest black musician to have ever lived. Any guesses at who she is? Well, I know, so maybe we'll just let the okay. <laughs> just let okay. the, the audience like have a little guess. <laughs> okay, well, if you guessed the one and only Nina Simone, you'd be <laughs> correct. <laughs> Now, instead, I thought instead of running through sort of a A to Z sort of biography of her life, because unlike the other one we've talked about, Nina Simone is a globally known figure. She's massively influential. Um, you know, I, I don't think there is a black artist today who wouldn't credit her as one point of inspiration no. um, or artist in general, to be honest. Um, so I thought instead of doing a this is biography time. I thought we could just talk about a few of the main points of Nina Simone's life, what she's contributed to black art and to civil rights movements that she's been involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, so just giving a little bit of background. So Miss Nina was born in 1933 in Tryon, North Carolina. And she wanted to be a classical pianist, but essentially her race excluded her from study at the Curtis Institute of Music in Pennsylvania. Now, Nina's family had actually relocated to Pennsylvania from North Carolina so that she could attend the school. But they're like, no, you're not really the right fit for us, which um, it was a very prestigious school. A lot of people were rejected, but notable that Nina was... Um, the only black woman who had tried to attend at that time. So she turned her attention to singing in clubs and bar lounges, um, playing the piano late into the night to support her family. It was at this time she really started to um, cut her teeth as a singer, as a writer of music, but throughout her entire career she always um, held more pride in her piano abilities than she ever did in her singing voice. Um. And it wouldn't be too Talk long. Talk about being if... a humble. <laughs> Talk about a humble. Brand. I know. <laughs> See, that's that's the thing. I mean, like Ellie and I both love like classical, like a good bit of like jazz music. It's important to note though that Nina did not like to be referred to as a jazz artist. Oh, really? She she believed that jazz was a term that was coined by white people to classify black music, and she considered herself to be an artist of black classical music, which. I think is I love that's that. what she wants to be referred to. That's how I'm going to refer to her from now on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I-, I grew up on Motown and Soul, so I am so here for this. So I discovered <laughs> Nina when I was 22 and when I was very, very, very depressed. Oh. <laughs> and was this your teaching years? Say, this, it was just before, actually. The depression oh. just continued for a while. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from about twenty-two to twenty-four, I was really just going through it. <laughs> um, so, uh, and obviously, I'm not black. I'm not American. Um, but 
I found her music to be so impactful and inspiring because the thing that I've always loved about Nina is just that she wasn't afraid to be pissed off. Yes. Um, so I've noted down just a few. So in the 1950s and 1960s, and sort of going to the 70s a little bit, it's what um, people coined as her civil rights era. Um, she was involved in Black Liberation. She wrote many songs and covered songs as well that were about the Black experience in America. Um, some of these songs include For Women, I Wish How, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free, Mississippi Goddamn, which was in response to the 16th Street, Birmingham, Alabama, church bombing where four young Black girls lost their lives and another one lost their eyesight. Um, after Martin Luther King was assassinated, she wrote a song called Why the King of Love is Dead. Um, she wrote a song called Young, Gifted and Black, and she also covered Strange Fruit. And there's, there's countless other songs in her catalogue, which are about the Black experience. But all of these songs are just the cornerstones of documenting the Black experience. And what I think is so fascinating is, because she was just that talented, like, she was just that good, even white audiences, like, loved Nina Simone. Obviously, people had issue with her because being a Black woman and saying things she did at the time she did, there's always going to be tickets. But she was able to bring the conversation into homes across the world. Mm. Um, Like a song like Mississippi Goddamn, she would perform that in, no, in Jackson, Mississippi, in Birmingham, Montgomery, Alabama. Um, Imagine the you know, impact it, of the time, like the power yeah. that the audience... Oh, like there's a performance where she sings it and I forget where it is. I think it's in Alabama. But she performed these songs in at the heart, a place that were at the heart of... Jim Crow at the heart of black oppression and to all white audiences wow. and did so knowing how dangerous that was but with so much honestly so much rage mm. and I want to emphasize that I'm celebrating the fact that she was angry because mm-hmm. of there's such a big narrative about angry black women in the media mm-hmm. and I don't want to sound like I'm pushing that onto her but her one thing that I love is that when women sort of go against expectation and show that they're pissed off mm. because a woman's anger is powerful. And this is the time to be angry, you know, like it's, yeah, it's absolutely. very much granted. And she, can, it, you know, this can be true without the angry black woman stereotype being yes, absolutely. You know, a thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So I just, I just think there's something so magical about Nina. I mean, like, Tell me about your experiences with her music. Um, well, I mean, I I I my first sort of intro to music, just full stop music, was like Etta James, Nina Simone, and a lot of Motown like bands and, mm. and artists. Um, and as I got older, I I had I ended up having this like repertoire cycle of Etta James, Nina Simone, and Ella Fitzgerald, basically that were like, like I grew up in Ella Fitzgerald. She's my yeah. all-time favorite. Yeah, like this co- this core, like powerful, like repertoire of of artists, and I mean, I don't, I don't really know, because I don't think I've thought about it myself really why it's resonated with me so deeply, or if it's just because it's something that my mum would listen to and we grew up with. But there's just, I mean, I'm a huge. Both me and Adam are huge music like music lovers. Um, yeah. I, I I did singing lessons for eight years of my life. My dream was to be on the West She's End. A like, 
my <laughs> my my whole life revolved around music I mean less so now um and this when when you're you know that into it and stuff like that it, it was really powerful to you and I the most like empowerment I would feel and the most like soulful um that I would feel and the music that would really touch my soul would always be Nina Simone, Ella Fitzgerald, Etta James. Later on, I'd get into John Legend, um, and yeah, to be more modern. <laughs> and um, I was always the weird kid as well. Like I, I went to school in Surrey, like it's all white as hell. But you know what? It was the same thing with me because I was the one kid in my <laughs> class that was like listening to like all Spanish music. You know, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can relate. It's then. like so. Yeah, because I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love me like some like top 40 stuff sometimes, not so much these days. Um, but like in my youth, you know, I was down for a bit of like black eyed peas and whatever. But <laughs> I think that finding distinctive voices in music that even if you aren't directly represented by them, but make you feel something and make you feel moved, mm-hmm. it's it's so impactful. And that's just what Nina Simone is to me. Yes, um, agreed, agreed. I mean, like, I got a, sp- I got a spell on you. Or I put a spell on you, even. Like that song, I could listen to you on repeat because just the way that her voice is, and just the it's the def- so emotive. As well. Even in a song like that, it almost feels like there's an aspect of defiance in how she sings it that I love. Mm, yeah. So it's like, oh. no, you hear me. I'm putting a spell on you. It's like so authoritative. Yeah, God, this is just becoming like a Nina Simone appreciation episode. Oh, you know what though? Like, I think as well, as someone that loves music, I mean, like we just said, what both music people, like so many artists that I adore today are inspired by Nina and sort of her contemporaries, like, you know, like the Arethas and Etta James oh. and Ella and Dionne Warwick and mm-hmm. um, Della Reese, um, you know, all those sort of pioneers of black music. I mean, without them, we wouldn't have had Whitney, we wouldn't have had Janet, we wouldn't have had Mm-mm. Beyonce, Rihanna, Mm-mm. we wouldn't have had, you know, any of the amazing Black artists that still continue to dominate today. And Nina herself directly has been, you know, sampled and referenced in so much amazing rap music as well. Mm-hmm. Like, her legacy is, well, people call her the mother of hip-hop, and even though she wasn't, you know, spitting bars on a track. <laughs> Imagine. She would I mean, say, like, I don't care. <laughs> oh, no, she really would. But, like, <laughs> even though she wasn't necessarily doing that herself, I think the I think the balls that she had, for lack of a better term, inspired a lot of other Black artists to be like, no, I've got a voice, I'm going to use it. Yeah, I mean, hell yeah. I mean, like, I also... So, a little bit more about her life. So... She was also <laughs> just a fascinating woman. So she was a close friend of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. She leaned more on the uh, Malcolm X mentality of um, Black nationalism and fighting for liberation as opposed to the nonviolent approach, which the older I get, the more I realise, you know what, I can see where they were coming from. I mm-hmm. think when you're in school, they say like, oh no, Martin Luther King was the good one because he wasn't violent. But if I was being treated the way that people were being treated, then hell yeah, I'd be violent. Like, let me smash up some shops. Absolutely. So as things started to progress in America in the 70s and America enters the Vietnam War at this point, obviously Martin Luther King has been assassinated. Um, There's been a lot of progress, not enough, and there still isn't enough progress in the conversation about race in America or in the UK. Um, 
people's attention turns a little bit away from civil rights and towards the Vietnam War. And Nina was like, not into this either. Fuck this. So she refused to pay her taxes. And obviously at this point, she's making a lot of money. Um, You know, she's selling albums. She's 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 doing the damn thing. You really love the so- tax baddies, don't you? <laughs> I'm you know joking, what? I'm joking. Like... I love Shakira. I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, okay. So we got a Shakira episode coming up. We won't we probably won't dive too much into the taxes, but I'll just say this here and now. <laughs> She's Colombian and didn't pay taxes to Spain, the country that colonized Colombia. That's Robin Hood. <laughs> okay continue continue (laughs) i just had to so she was like fuck this ain't paying my taxes so she went to barbados as you do Mm. and her manager was like i'll let you know when to come back and then he was like nah babes they're they're pissed off about the taxes you can't (laughs) come back he's gonna get arrested (laughs) so eventually so she went from barbados she lived there for a bit then she moved to liberia which a little bit of background on Liberia. Liberia is a country in West Africa, quite a small country, that was founded by the United States as a place to repatriate American slaves. Um, So uniquely placed in Africa. But she was like, she moved to Africa for a bit. She loved it there. Um, Liberia is a very complex place. Um, I don't really feel like I've got the authority to talk about the dynamic there. Um, so people have mixed opinions about her being in Liberia or Liberia as a country. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, she moves from Africa to Europe. She lived in the Netherlands for a bit, Belgium, France. She kind of did a little tour around Western Europe. Okay. Um, in 2003, she passed away in France in her sleep very peacefully. Um, but she continued up until her death, basically, to be very outspoken. And her message about truly being in love with the black experience and loving black people because that's what i always get away from any time i've heard her speak she just adored her community she i remember there's a quote and i'm gonna paraphrase it because i don't have it written down in front of me but she called black people the most beautiful creatures in the universe and just she truly loved her community and i think that some people look at her and think that she was too brash or that she was too argumentative that she was and she was a very complicated woman she had a very complicated life those people can sit the fuck down to be honest (laughs) but that exactly completely agree she was truly just a phenomenal talent and gave so much to the world and so much to her community specifically and just yes dream nina simone (laughs) <laughs> yeah honestly that the takeaway from this episode is stream nina simone because if you don't i to be honest if if somebody was to tell me that they don't like nina simone's music immediate yeah. red flag immediate ick, and i would honestly just doubt them um I know. as a person i would just be like, like, i don't trust you i'd be like have you heard nina simone yeah like it's okay to not like that genre but to just be like nah like i don't like well, okay i'm gonna put you on battle. the spot okay top three Nina Simone songs ah no I knew you were gonna ask this I can't <laughs> I think I, I I not to be a basic bitch but I put a spell on you is probably my favorite one and also mm. I have heard it covered most recently because I watched Hocus Pocus <laughs> 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 not so, the same not the same but it is Halloween season very so. fun <laughs> I think for me I love so many of them but um the other woman is high up there 
covered mm. famously oh. by Lana Del Rey. <laughs> Blackbird is also oh, yes. up there for me. Brilliant one. Um, I think Mississippi Goddamn and Four Women are also really high up there Oof. for me. Yes, yes, I just, yes, yeah. She just did the damn thing. And obviously Four Women, we didn't even talk about that song much, but no. those of you who don't know, it's a song that she wrote about the perspectives of four different black women. So sort of showing an intersectional approach to her own community because it talks about women in different positions of different sort of heritages. Um, she talks about a mixed race woman in the song um, and shows the commonality of the black female experience that despite differences in background and context, black women in America, it's a rough ride regardless of where you fall on the spectrum. Mm. Absolutely. Um, she, do you know what? I'm so glad we ended on Nina Simone because she is yeah. a personal icon of mine, just generally, like for you know, in terms of music, musical musicality. So, um, just big up all everyone who has been inspired by her and who has gone on to create beautiful Amazing music as well. Yeah. Like I, she's just the, the amount. It's almost like, like not. Her her impacts will never truly be fully measured. I think that's what I mean. We can't. I couldn't do enough to thank her for what she's yeah. done for music. And yeah, what an icon! Everyone we've spoken about has been either iconic, a pioneer, or so important to you know understand their stories and where they've come from. And I really hope that you guys who have been listening have one <clears throat> appreciated. Uh, the episode but to have you know learn about black history this month because that's what it's about and I don't remember learning about any of this at school um and black history no and black history has been so overlooked um throughout the years and just like how you know Yuna has been deemed the the lost Caribbean voice or the forgotten Caribbean voice like I think that rings true for so many black stories and voices and and people in the past and I think this is the month where we don't let that happen. Like we bring them back and we remember and we learn uh, and then we grow them and we change. It's so incredibly important. So peace. I think that's the perfect <laughs> way to take us home on. That was beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Um, share your black icons with us guys. You can DM us on Instagram, Ellie. Yes. Um, so we are at the new feminist magazine on Instagram and at TNF uh, magazine on all other social platforms and uh, the newfeminist.co.uk is our website where you can find loads of um, black history or just black related content um, if you want to enrich your brains <laughs> thank you guys um, watch this space we'll be back very soon yeah peace out peace out